how will you learn to fail and and be okay getting knocked down brushing off your your elbows and your your shins that got scraped up and got some dirt on them and say that's okay look at what i learned do it again do it again and do it again the road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew and there are always big questions to overcome how are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets how do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit yet still remain profitable these are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs the good the bad the ugly and the dirt in between my name is jim barnish and welcome to the dirt I think our guest today has held more types of roles than anyone I know. She's been a founder, an operator, or a consultant in nearly every business function over the last 30 years, and now brings that expertise to future entrepreneurs at Ohio State University. As a proud member of the LGBTQ community, she brings a special point of view around diversity to both the classroom and the workforce that I simply could not pass up on the Dirt podcast. In today's conversation, we'll dig into her entrepreneurial success and mostly failures (laughs) and how those translate to both existing founders and budding entrepreneurs in the Dirt. Three-time founder, Silicon Valley alumna, and academic director of entrepreneurship programming at Ohio State's Fisher College of Business, Dr. Lori Kendall, welcome to the Dirt. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for joining. You, uh, you're a special guest as you're, as you're uh, also a former operating partner here at Orchid Black. And, you know, you're obviously doing things in an academic sense, as well as all the great accomplishments that you've had. But, you know, just, just starting out with the early part, the early days, all the early things that you experienced in building businesses and and building in general. Talk to me about how you got here. Oh, man. From a misbegotten youth to becoming a programmer at age 15. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an old dame, but I was into computers really, really early on. Uh, I've, I've loved tech, technology, and making software and making systems do stuff for as long as I can imagine. And that began a a career where originally working in IT uh, as a programmer, as a systems programmer, uh, maintaining systems that our developers used to uh, joining a big company, uh, working for Xerox, hating that, Love the people I work with at Xerox. Uh, hated some of the big company aspects of that, and had the temerity, despite the fact that I hadn't completed a college degree, to join a leading edge, Pitch Johnson backed uh, startup in Palo Alto, California, called Aon, and became the quality assurance, quality reliability engineering manager, where my job was to figure out how to test an inference engine. And I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Zero, none. And from there, 
It's always been dive in, head first, figure it out, get bored, move on, dive in head first, figure it out, move on. Um, I did product management roles, product marketing roles. I played a VP of marketing on TV once uh, for a, for another uh, venture-backed small company called Incata. Uh, you know, there's just something about being on the leading edge of the thing that is going to change the world next. And I loved that. Yeah. And, you know, at some point it, it got to a point of you get the promotions, you get the big job opportunities. Uh, I, my little companies would get acquired and be part of a big company for a while. And then the clarion call of go do something new. And I did that with one team of two other guys. We did that together three times. And after that, I kind of started looking around and said, I've done a lot of stuff in the Valley, uh, not famous, made some money, lost a lot of money. What else is there? And the question that I needed to answer for myself was when the last company that I co-founded or founded failed, and I didn't know why. And that just bugged the crap out of me because it's one thing to blame somebody else for the reason a company fails and doesn't, you know, fails to thrive. And I started thinking about accidental empires. I started thinking really hard. I did just a crap ton of reading, Jim. And I said, why is it that companies in the Valley fail so much? Why did my company fail? And that began an academic journey to get my butt back into school, translate those 250 semester hours into one original lousy bachelor's degree. And then from there, a master's degree and uh, ultimately a doctorate, because I was really driven to answer that question. And one thing that led to another um, consulting I did earlier in my career, I started doing academically, which is how I ended up working with you all at at Orchid Black. And by the way, I'm still on the website and I still get calls from the team. And if there's still an opportunity where my unique skill set can help out, you know, I'm always going to say yes. Yes. Because being in touch with real people, real problems, real issues matters to me. And I'm not some ivory tower academic who theorizes about the way that the world is, I kind of need to get dirt under my nails, Hmm. pun intended, since we're talking about the dirt. Yeah. And what I've loved in trying to answer that question is that there is no single great answer to why companies fail. But I can honestly tell you, I have a lot, hell of a lot more insight today than I did looking around the room in my office, realizing that I was going to leave and begin a journey to go figure that out uh, during the recession, which was a terrible time to leave a company and gaze at your navel, I know. Yeah. Well, you know, I I, uh, I shouldn't have said former because you're absolutely right. Even though you're a full-time academic, we still uh, leverage and love working with you when possible. <laughs> I just know how busy of a lady you are, so I try not to bug yeah. you too much. But um, at, at the end of the day, this journey from entrepreneur and operator to academic is really unique, right? You don't you don't see that 
as as often as maybe you should or we should as a as a community as humans. But this problem I want to dig into that you mentioned around. I mean, I guess I'll call it um, just building and growing, or just sustainable growth. Maybe that's probably the best way to to talk about it. Like, <clears throat> if we're looking at the problem statement of why is my business not growing, right? What does that What does that mean to you? And 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 you know, what does that what comes to mind when you think of that? Mm. You know, there's three dimensions that come to mind, and I do talk about this in my Foundations of Entrepreneurship course, and I I talk about this when um, I advise clients. There's really three reasons. Number one, do you understand? Do I understand? Does the person I'm talking to understand the, the market that we're actually playing in? Not the market we think we're playing in. Not the way that we originally did our first hypothesis. Hmm. Not the way we filled out that you know business model canvas. But over the countless handshakes, the funnel, progressing through the, the sales funnel, closing deals, <clears throat> the closing rate, the amount of time it takes to deliver that product to the person, the uptake by the client, how much is reoccurring revenue. Hmm how many people stay, how many people defect, what's the churn rate. If, if we're not spot on about what our market actually is, we end up with 80% of our business being held hostage by 10 most important customer. Mm. And the uptake of closing new business stalls. Problem number one, classic. You know this, I know this. We find this a lot in, in the clients or the, the folks we, we meet. And I see it all the time. I saw, I saw it in my own business, right? I saw it in my last uh, technology SaaS business at Transera. The second thing that comes to mind for me, if it's a little bit of an earlier stage company, and let's say that I had some accidental great initial hits, and then my business stalled, and I'm not growing, well, what have I decided to manage? What have I put my attention on? What have I focused on? Have I focused on one part of the business and neglected social media? Have I neglected marketing? Have I neglected new leads into the funnel? Have I neglected my, my ASOs? my receivables, so I'm not getting cash in the door? Have I neglected doing the new things that need to be done in favor of keeping the lights on? And I've got an inbox that's piling up and I'm not growing my team. I'm stuck with one salesperson and that salesperson's at peak. And what I really need to do is I need to get somebody else what have I neglected? What part of my business have I neglected? Mm-hmm. Problem number two. For me, problem number three is do I understand the life cycle of my customer and what it takes for me to manage that entire 
customer life cycle, the customer journey. And do I understand how that builds my book of business, which is somewhat related to the first problem, but it's actually a little different Mm. because I may have a target rich opportunity, but if I get stumble because it takes me too long to in that customer journey. I've not done a customer mapping journey. I don't know where the squeaky wheels are. I don't know what causes delay in my conversion cycle. I don't know what causes delay in how my clients add users or or add people to their business in a B2B type of, of sale. I was just talking to a former student of mine, second year MBA, who is working in the dental industry in a do-it-yourself type of business that challenges how expensive it is to whiten your teeth, how Mm. expensive it is to get orthodonture. And what he said, honestly, is is in one type of business model, everything that they do, they don't understand that journey very well. And in the process of learning what that journey was, and we talked about customer mapping journeys, and we talked about where's the squeak? Yeah. Where's the friction? How do you get rid of that friction? Because until you know that and you know what your entire customer life cycle is, you're not going to see the type of growth or be able to predict the type of growth in a target-rich environment that you want. Now, if you don't understand your market, go back to problem number one. So those are the three big, chunky, meaty issues that I see consistently once we're out of the gate. And, and whether you are an entrepreneur or, you know, uh, an academic student, you know, whatever, whatever your role might be for those listening. I mean, one of the things that I know you are have significant expertise in that I've seen in a number of different size companies is design thinking. And the experimentation, you mentioned customer journey, you mentioned market mapping, you mentioned right all these things that connect back to ultimately breaking down the most simple principles of business building, right? But we overcomplicate everything once we oh, actually yeah. start doing it. Because <laughs> now we've got people and things and processes and technology, and all of a sudden we lose sight of like what we set out to do and what we're trying to, to solve for. Do you mind just speaking a little bit to, you know, those principles of design thinking, experimentation, some of those areas that uh, that are just so core to, to really strategy? Absolutely. I think what I love, and I was just having this conversation yesterday, I was doing a, a breakfast briefing for about 40 to 50 folks at Fisher, sort of a breakfast once a quarter, get together and talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to uh, a lean expert, a lean master black belt, and we were we were chatting about her company and the initiatives of her company at applying lean principles to eliminate waste and to improve operational efficiency. And she said to me, "What do you think about the role of design thinking in mm-hmm. lean?" And I I just burst out laughing, and I said, "You know, we have a lot of labels of how we call stuff." And we have a lot of stripes that we put on people's sleeves of expertise. Oh, I'm a certified black belt. Oh, I'm a master black belt. Oh, I'm a lean 
black belt. Oh, I'm a Six Sigma design black belt or, oh, I'm a scrum master. And can we just reduce it down a little bit? Can, can we say there's two sides of the same coin? And what I really love since the days of the Agile Manifesto, dating myself, 1999, what I love about those halcyon days and where we are today is there's two simple themes that have emerged. Just dirt simple. Hmm. One is that a lean canvas allows us to take a business model canvas principle and center it around people. What design thinking allows us to do in its simplest form is to take agile and center it around people. Now, we can get a lot more complicated than that. But at the end of the day, if I want to understand a market, design thinking says, a lean canvas says, who the hell am I serving? And why would they care? In a product life cycle discipline of, of Agile, of Scrum, in its best, it is mapping what I think I should be building against the personas that I think I should be building it for. So if we put design into the very center of a sprint plan, of an agile plan, and we have experts that whether we do a t-shirt size or we, we score how difficult it is to do that feature and we have to ultimately say, and against whom is that feature helping? For me, That's that's the point of all of this. Where I think in the 80s and the 90s, where we really went astray as organizations doing stuff, is we focused on metrics that were measuring some key performance indicator about a thing. But we stopped looking at that thing against a person. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing, and this goes back to, to something that I get super fired up about, and I promise I won't go on too much about this. I rail against this in class. When we do time and motion studies, and we say, you should be able to take 20 calls an hour. That's a metric that says, how efficient should you be? How productive should you be? But if I do that, and I do that losing sight of the fact that the type of person who's I'm talking to on the phone right now needs more of my time, and if I can completely solve their problem so that they're happy, so that they're satisfied, who am I serving here? If I dump them, which too many call center agents do in order to meet their performance metric. 
Who have I not put at the center of that metric? The person. And that for me is, I always want to put the center of the person in the metric that I'm trying to examine so that my design thinking is clear. What's my objective? What, what the why of this? You know, the Simon Sinek, the why of this. And as long as we do that, then I think design thinking is elegant, just like I think a, a lean canvas is elegant. I think any other process tool is elegant, but let's put people at the center. But it's a tool, right? It's a tool. It's a tool. And it's kind of the, you know, you mentioned agile, agile development, agile processes, right? And it's that whole concept of doing agile versus being agile, right? Mm-hmm. Of which is the same thing as doing culture versus being a culture, right? It's, it's, you want to be purposeful in setting up the right processes and technology to support, but at the end of the day, shit, it's nothing without the people, right? Yeah. That's what it, that's what it's about. So that's, I mean, that's, um, that's, there's a lot of lessons learned there. Great, great, great insight. But you know what it, what it also brings up is, the connection of kind of the way entrepreneurs think and the way that um, people think when they're in the midst of building and there's so many things being thrown at them as the leader or the founder of the company. And you, you are the person, right? Even if you have co-founders, you're still the people, right? You, you feel this overwhelming sense of obligation. You, you, everything is on you, right? And suddenly you become not about yourself at all. And if you're not careful, right, you become, so consumed by your company and your team and your customers that you lose sight of building and what you set out to build, which might be a family. It might be to support, you know, you know, something else, but ultimately there's something in your personal life that's driving you to do your business life. Right. Um, Talk to me about like how, how you as an entrepreneur, you know, really dealt with that entrepreneurial mindset and the organizational dynamics that you dealt with as part of that as well as how, how that translates to the classroom. And I know that's a big question, but it's, I think it's important to hit on all aspects of that. And I, I know you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. So I'm going to first begin by saying that there's a lot of time management tools and productivity tools that I picked up along the way that help keep me honest and help me be productive. But for a long time, I typically suck at life balance. I just suck at it. And I will probably always suck at it. And knowing that has been really useful. I heard. I don't remember her name, the president of, of uh, Chase Personal Banking, dynamic woman. I was in a room watching her at a, give a keynote for an annual um, conference uh, for, for women empowering leadership development. And she made a point that when she was a rising young superstar and she found herself on the platform taking the subway home because she lived out in one of the boroughs and she was leaving downtown Manhattan 
late at night, Friday night. Her girls were long in bed. It's midnight. And she's thinking, what am I doing? (laughs) Why am I here? Why am I here leaving midnight on a Friday? And once again, my husband has put our children to bed. And she says, what I realized in that moment is that everything that we do in life is more like a portfolio. It's not a scale. On a daily basis, if you try to manage your portfolio, you're going to lose a lot of money. The same with our commitments of of the things that we care about. We can't at any point balance the scales and give equal time to everything that we care about. What we can do is recognize when we need to rebalance our portfolio and ask for sabbatical, take time off, cut back on our load in terms of the number of classes we do, take a vacation and don't bring your laptop, make a decision to have an email-free weekend, whatever it is. That And I listened to that and I just started laughing because I thought, if we don't consciously make those types of thoughtful choices, illness, burnout, relationship trouble, kids getting sick, emergencies, they'll make those decisions for us. So we can either be at the effect of that and just let life happen, or we can try to be a little bit more deliberate And even though I'm a maniac, I try to be a little bit more deliberate. And what it comes for me, when I I worked with John uh, and the team last fall and last winter on on a uh, Orchid Black client, is I just made a decision that I did more of the things that I needed to do for the classroom Monday through Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I spent time on the client, and then I used Sunday to recharge my batteries, get groceries, get cooking done for the week, do some batch cooking, and the like. And I made some trade-offs that were fairly painful in terms of things that I was not going to get done, but I have to trade my time. And so coming back as a founder and coming back as somebody that the weight of the world is on our shoulders, what do we do? And as I, as I tell my students in class, we have to get good at managing time because the two things, money and time, I view one as blood and one as oxygen. And without either of those things, we don't go. We flat out don't go. If we don't have cash, we don't go. But if we don't have oxygen, we don't breathe. Yeah. And so both of those, I will, I will pivot and take any entrepreneur as a client or any student who's got an 18 credit hour class load. They've got a neuroscience major. They've got a hot burning idea. They're participating in uh, um, competitions in school. They're up to get $150,000 as seed money from Rev1 Ventures. And they say, I don't know when to sleep. Hmm. And I'll say, 
Got it. How are you managing your time? What system are you using? I'll put mo- I'll throw most people towards getting things done by David Allen. Only because David Allen is a very flexible GTD or getting things done is a very flexible way of not designing a time system from the top down, but from the bottom up, just confronting what are all the things that are in your brain that you think you have to get done, how do you get them out of your brain and how do you get them into a context to deciding when and where and how I'm going to do something and to make sure that any one time, the thing that's in front of me is indeed the, the most important thing I should work on right now. The most important thing I should focus on right now. And you know, even though I think, you know, GTD is something that I picked up in, in 2010. Um, I think it's, it's for me, I still practice it today. It's unlike uh, a Covey system, unlike a lot of other systems I've tried over the years. And I believe me, I've tried them all. It is stuck with me because it's a very flexible way of thinking about how do I stay sane and and how do I make sure that the balls don't drop, that if they drop, are catastrophic for my business? Yeah. G- and that's, that's GTD. GTD, getting things done. Getting things done. Yep. Um, it's easy to find on the web. There's books on Amazon. There's free podcasts. I can teach GTD and anybody in about 30 minutes. So let's let's go back to the student side of that, right? Um, You you know, one thing that I I think people always battle with is, do I go to school for this or do I go do it? Or do I find a way to do both, right? Um, And as someone who found a way to do both, as challenging as it it was, I could not imagine another way um, other than getting the experience and understanding the experiences and then, and then going to get it academically. Like I can't, I, I, I can see how challenging it is for those who go to school, go to school, go to school and then apply it. Right. Because you, having both simultaneously, or at least having some experience that goes into that really helps you understand the foundation of not just the academic, but the implementation and the execution of like how, do, how you take these things and, and and bring them into real life. <laughs> um, how do you, for those, for those that are kind of going back and forth and going through that journey, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that as it relates to the classroom, as it relates yeah. to what they're, you know, what they're doing and thinking about starting a new business? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have a, a very imperfect answer, <laughs> but I can, chat for just a moment because uh, President Johnson, the the president of of Ohio State, has really made entrepreneurship a pillar in terms of entrepreneurship programming, entrepreneurship opportunity for any student of any college, an ag student, pre-med, pre-law, pre-vet school, economics major, fine arts major, music major, business major, don't care what college. Every student should have an opportunity to explore what is entrepreneurship for them in the context. And the reason we say this 
is because Gen Z is the entrepreneurship generation. They're by far the most entrepreneurial of the four generations, the five generations that are alive today, hands down. And that's not hyperbole. What we try to offer, what I try to offer, what I try to encourage and what I, I advise. I advise a couple of entrepreneurship clubs on campus. I advise at any one time, 10 to 20 students. Uh, talk about this in class. Is there's no safer place than learning what it is to be entrepreneurial than to do entrepreneurial while you're a student. There is no safer place on the planet because that's where we can undo some of your programming about being afraid to fail. The one thing that young people, true for me, probably true for you, that when we're figuring life out, and we want to get it right, making mistakes is very scary. We don't want to raise our hand and look stupid in class. We don't want to put something out there and have and be laughed at, not be taken seriously. And there's this wonderful young entrepreneur who recorded at a TEDx talk, this fantastic 12-minute talk about why you're not an entrepreneur yet. And she talks about not being taken seriously, not knowing what you need to know, all the reasons why I, I can't, I don't know, I don't have time, I don't have money. She talks about all that stuff. And what I tell my students after they watch this video and or after I recommend my advisees that they watch this video as we talk about it, is I say, how will you learn to fail? And and be okay getting knocked down, brushing off your, your elbows and your, your shins that got scraped up and got some dirt on them and say, that's okay. Look at what I learned. Do it again. Do it again and do it again. Now, how you balance that as a student, well, get good at your time and get good at making trade-offs. And the biggest thing about making trade-offs so that you can manage your time is, frankly, it's brain development. You know, our prefrontal cortex doesn't come online fully until we're in our early to mid-20s for men and women. And before then, we don't know how to delay gratification very well. We don't necessarily understand the consequences of sleeping through a midterm. We don't think about trade-offs consciously, and we kind of suck the marshmallow test. At the end of the day, being entrepreneurial is, and being a student is forcing that prefrontal cortex to make trade-offs and to say, this is more important than that. And what do I need to do to achieve this? What do I need to, what do I need to do to get ready for this best of the student startup competition? And oh, by the way, I've got a midterm next week. How do I figure out to be ready for that physics midterm, which is a brain buster and not show up and throw up when I have to do a 12 minute pitch. Well, you and I know that by the time you're 30, if you don't figure that out, you're not gonna make it as an entrepreneur. 
But when you're an 18 or 19-year-old kid, if you can figure out how to do that as an 18 or 19-year-old, oh, baby. Yeah. What I wish I knew how to do that as an 18 or 19-year-old. What can't you do in life? <laughs> yeah. That's a very powerful, that increase of neuronal density and that type of, uh, that type of, of pattern and that muscle memory to be able to do that. Yeah. That's turbocharging your ability to be an entrepreneur. And so I tell students, do it, go for it. Now, if you reach a point in your life where the demands of the business are such that you don't know how, and it's not conceivable to manage an 18 credit class course load and close that million dollar of capital, then do what a couple of my students have done. Take a leave of absence, have one credit hour, stay engaged in the university, give yourself a two-year milestone and do what sometimes my football players do, right? I have football players, I have starting players in the NFL that go to school in the off season and where they learn to do that was the same thing that allows the student who's preparing for a physics exam and prepare for a best of the student startup competition is the discipline of how do I balance those things? And yet I'm going to be a starting quarterback. I'm a starting tight end. I'm a starting quarterback. That's a fan. I'm not too sure. I love the idea of Justin Fields in your classroom, but I'll take it. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah. But um, far from the only, uh, far from the only student, entrepreneurship is a really popular topic for athletics and for NCAA stars in, in baseball, soccer, basketball, football. Why? Because being a professional athlete is a business. Yeah. And and I really encourage NCAA athletes, go get entrepreneurship programming while you're a a undergraduate student pursuing your craft as a professional athlete. I say the same to musicians. I say the same to theater majors. I say the same to folks that are going to to law school or going to medicine or going to dental school or become full-time farmers. I say, look, you are an entrepreneur, like it or not. If you're a theater major, if you're an actor, you are an entrepreneur. You have a business. Leaving that in the hands of agents is a really bad idea. How do you know when you're getting good advice? Yep. So that's All my pitch. Of, no, I mean, nailed it. Nailed the pitch. <laughs> You know, all sorts of good insights here on building products and building companies and and building yourself, right? Build, being a master of not just your business strategy but your personal strategy. I mean, this is this has been um, this has been an incredible conversation. We're going to have to have a follow up um, at some point just to we love to really dig into a few other things. Um, but at this time, just you know, at the at the end of the show, we like to close these off in what I call the Founder Five, which is you know, that ultimately five rapid fire questions in, in under a minute, just to try to work through the things that are at the roots of building businesses. Do it. Yourself. So 
I think the first one is, um, what is the number one metric that you're relentlessly focused on? Ends to zero. Email mm. inbox to zero every day. Love it. What is the top tip for growth stage founders like yourself? You need to have sense making diversity on the team to avoid group think. Don't get everybody on the team to think like you. Mm. Great. A favorite book or podcast or channel that's that's helped you grow? Unlocking Us, Brene Brown. Amicus by Dahlia Lithwick. My favorite books, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen. And Getting Things Done by David Allen. Well, there's two on that list that I have not done. So thank you for that. Add those to my list. <laughs> uh, what actor would, or actress would play you in a movie? Reese Witherspoon. Oh, man, I love that one. And I love Reese. That's a perfect one. Well done. <laughs> what is uh, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? Forever Restless. Very cool. I can relate. <laughs> so you, you've given so much to our listeners today, Lori. Um, time for a little bit of self-promotion for how others might be able to help you. How can those listening help? You know, I... I will tell you that in my undergraduate uh, Foundations of Entrepreneurship course, students love meeting founders. They love meeting entrepreneurs. They love meeting people who look like them, are not too much older than they are, and are doing amazing things in the world. So if you're a founder, if you're an entrepreneur, and you want to come in and I can record you doing a talk, or I can bring you into class and you can meet students, I welcome and I really need and rely on just having students meet people who are doing it. Love it. That's great. And, and how, uh, how might they get in, talk, in contact with you? My email is really straightforward. It's Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L-L dot 185 at osu.edu. Or you can find me on the Orchid Black page. My contact information is listed there. Terrific. Well, thanks, Lori. It's been a pleasure as always. And uh, go have yourself a good rest of your day. Jim, you know, I love you. I love the team at Orchid Black. I love everything that we're doing at Orchid Black. Have a fabulous rest of your day. You too. Let's change the world. Rock on. If you love today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.